You will learn when you take care of people who are dying from really horrific diseases that there are things that are worse than death. Penny, thank you so much for being here again. As I just mentioned prior to recording this, your page on Instagram, TikTok, and all that around a topic of death is insanely hilarious and informational and just so perfect that uh, I couldn't resist asking you to be on here. So I'm super grateful that you agreed, first of all. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. Of course. And uh, we didn't really game plan exactly what we're going to be talking about. Obviously, death. I mean, it's Dead Talks podcast. But I'm just so interested in your line of work being in the hospice field, obviously, because you're so surrounded by death at a constant basis that it's incredible to me how you're able to maintain the attitude that you have constantly being bombarded with, you know, loss and people at the end of their life. So to start, I guess, or wherever you want to start, really, but how did you first of all get into this field? Well, first of all, um, I was an old nurse. I didn't go to nursing school until I was 40. And I did that as a result of um, my ex-husband and I deciding to become divorced. And I'd been a stay-at-home mom and I needed a career. And I looked in the newspaper and I saw they were hiring lots of nurses. So I went to nursing school. About a year prior to that, his stepmother had cancer and she ended up in a hospice care center and then she died at home on hospice. And I was so impressed with those nurses. I just thought, you know, they were just really wonderful. And also I had a kind of rough earlier life and knew that I wanted to do some kind of service work. I, I felt like I wanted to do something that kind of gave back to the community. It was service work. At that time, there was a lot of abuse going on in nursing homes. And so I decided I was either going to work in a nursing home or I was going to work in hospice. And hospice was the opportunity that presented itself to me. And so I just went into it and it's almost Everything I've ever done has been in hospice nursing. I did about three months in the ER. I worked for a year in a clinic. I worked for a couple of months on a med surge floor. But other than that, my whole career has been hospice. This is kind of an odd way to say it, but do you ever get used to it? I mean, I, I feel like being around, being around that so constantly, I have no experience with that. So just take this with a grain of salt. But I feel like once you just, you know, habit and constantly being around the same thing routinely, things become routine. And I feel like, I don't, I don't, do you, do you constantly digest being around people at the end of their life the same way as when you started? Or do you ever get numb to it? Or do you get more gratefulness from it? Like what kind of experience have you had over the years? Definitely more gratitude. Uh, never have felt numb from it. I currently am a hospice quality manager. So I stepped away from the bedside a few years ago after working uh, in a hospice care center for many, many years. I always say that was in your face, death and dying. You're at the bedside with the dying. And then I was also a home hospice case manager for a long time. When I started, I had never really seen a dead body. I saw one dead person, my ex-husband's mother, who also died right around the same time as his stepmother, died in a hospital and we went and saw her and they'd kind of fixed her up. And so I, I never really had seen a dead person when I started hospice. So I kind of almost went into it with a little bit of wonderment. The other thing for me was that I had death anxiety. Um, I, I was always really fearful of death. 
I didn't have any religious upbringing at all, and I had no solid belief in an afterlife. And so I had severe death anxiety. And so I, I kind of wondered if working around death would help that. And it actually did. I don't recall a time when I ever, you know, felt sad or disturbed um, by people dying. I just, I think people who do hospice, you know, we just, there's something in us that allows us to do that kind of work. You're either cut out for it or you're not. And I just happened to be cut out for it. I, I really had more of a, a curiosity and like I said, a sense of wonderment for the dying process and watching people dying and seeing dead people and, and helping their families. Um, it just, it was just the right fit for me. Where do you think that starts from? Where does that stem death anxiety? Was there any specific experience or just the idea that you didn't understand it or have a foundation of, not that any of us has a freaking foundation, obviously maybe religion can kind of help, but where do you believe that comes from? You know, it's interesting because I really actually didn't think about it that much until I started doing social media and hearing from people who have death anxiety. I think it comes from a lack of understanding about dying and death, a lack of acceptance that it's going to happen to all of us, um, and a lack of conversation. People don't talk about it. You know, we just will not talk about death. It's scary. It's sad. And nobody nobody wants to have those conversations. And, you know, it's it, that makes it really unknown. And people are just inherently going to have a fear of the unknown. And also, the other thing is, I really started to get death anxiety when I was in my early 30s. And so my theory is, you know, we're kids, we grow up, we're waiting to get older, and then we hit this milestone and we are turning 30. And all of a sudden, we realize that, you know, we're faced with our mortality. Like, oh my God, I'm 30. Like, tell me any 30-year-old that doesn't feel like, oh my gosh, I'm really old now that I'm turning 30. Like, there's something about turning 30 and I just think that has something to do with it, too. I think a lot of people, when they get to that milestone, they start to think about their own mortality. You know, you're approaching middle age, and it helps you, you know, like, realize that your life is halfway over when you hit m middle age, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's, that's some true. I mean, like, you see, hit the nail on the head, anything we don't really understand. I feel like a lot, there's a lot of topics where I'm sidetracking here a little bit, but when someone doesn't understand something, usually, you know, you can be fearful for that, but usually you can dive into it, learn about it. But there's something about death, clearly, because it's death that I, you don't see a lot of people diving into something or to learn more about it or even listen to a podcast like this, but you've done it in such a way that is entertaining and kind of takes the ease off it through your humor and even educational videos. You know, like I, when I was going through, I was like, oh, this, this she she makes a joke, but she's also adding a lot of value to it. So how did that come about? Is that just your, who you are? Or is it something that you developed along the way through your patients to add that flair to death? Well, you know, um, people always think working in hospice is sad and it's really not. And, and myself and my colleagues, you know, we're kind of given to dark humor. I, I guess it's a coping mechanism. And I learned um, through being with patients and their families that humor is something that people retain until they die and they retain it when their loved one is dying, you know, and, and it is a great coping skill. And I've always been a little bit of an entertainer. I was in, you know, musicals and stuff like that in high school, community theater. Um, when I got on TikTok, I actually did not intend on doing anything related to death and dying or hospice. 
I was trying to learn how to shuffle dance. And um, my first TikTok video is actually like this dumb little trend. In fact, my first several videos were these dumb little TikTok trends. And uh, one day I told a story and uh, it was just kind of a straightforward story about a hospice experience. And it went viral and I started to get a lot of followers. But what I really wanted to do was the trends because I thought the trends were really fun and I like to be funny. And so I thought, how can I, you know, turn this trend into something that's educational, you know, and it'll be fun and it lightens up the topic of death and it'll appeal to a younger audience, you know. Um, and so I just kind of went with that. And really my philosophy is that death is a dark subject and it's easier to digest if you lighten it up. And I have found that that people really responded to that. My favorite example is a video that I did where I'm just dancing around and the song goes, it's just water, it's just water. And I'm just dancing around and lip syncing it. And on the words I'm saying, you know, the dying person doesn't need any water. Their body is shutting down. They're not going to die from dehydration. They're dying from their disease. And, and it got a lot of views. And I had a lot of comments from people who said, thank you for this information. I didn't know this. And one of them was somebody who told me that for the last 15 years, she worried that her dad had died from dehydration. And that video alleviated that fear in her. And so I realized that that type of education is really valuable to a lot of people. That's amazing, especially the younger audience, right? Especially that's an audience mm -hmm. that you think would not be interested in it. But do you find the audience that is interested in that are, that are a younger crowd, is there any gravitation towards based on your engagement with your audience of people that have experienced death or is it kind of a smorgasbord of people that you think have or have not? It doesn't even matter. It's a smorgasbord for sure. I have lots of people who have experienced it. I have lots of people who have um, just thought about it. Um, young, old, they've had somebody that they knew that died on hospice or not on hospice. I have a lot of uh, people who are terminally ill who follow me. They're facing their own death. Uh, it's just a wide variety of, of people who follow my my stuff and like my education style. Some people just like the straightforward stories. They like the, you know, question and answer information and others like the the trends. I've had a lot of young people who ask me if I'd be their mom. Oh. Um, you know, they just uh, think I'm cool, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. You seem pretty badass. <laughs> not going to lie. So <laughs> it's you. just not a surprise that people gravitate towards you. seem pretty magnetic and you know, I'm not even next to you right now. So we said, okay, so you brought in the early 30s aspect of kind of thinking about your own mortality. And how old were you when you first got into the hospice field? Was this before or after? I was about, probably about 43 because I was 40 when I went to nursing school. I was probably 42 when I got my first nursing job. And then I worked for a year in a clinic and a couple months in a med surge floor. So I think I was probably about 43 when I started uh, working in hospice. So how, how have you turned out in regards to your death anxiety? Where, where are you with that now? So that, that and this is an interesting journey too. So, um, you know, when, when you work in, in, a, in hospice and, and you start seeing people dying and you watch some of these phenomenons that happen with them, and one of them being that they vision at the end of life, their deceased loved ones and pets. 
It's very, very common. It's unrelated to medication. It can happen with anybody, whether they're taking meds or not, whether they have any kind of uh, brain involvement with their disease process. Long before they're dying, when they're not confused, they're cognitive, they're able to tell you what they see. You see it often enough that it really convinces you that there has to be something beyond this life. And so for me, that was a part of of resolving that death anxiety for me. But when I went into hospice quality and I stopped doing patient care, I didn't really have that connection with families anymore or patients anymore. And um, I still was connected with hospice. Uh, You know, I know a lot about regulation and quality. I uh, do a lot of training with nurses, did a lot of -of end-of-life training with our volunteers for their volunteer vigil program, but didn't have that connection with people anymore. And I started, after a couple of years, I started to feel that anxiety creeping up in me again. And And I literally thought to myself, I am not connected with death anymore. And now I'm getting death anxiety. Wow. But when I got on TikTok and I started talking about it and connecting with people on TikTok through my comments, through DMs, through TikTok lives, it went away for me again. So it was like talking about it is really what alleviated it in the end. And I think, um, you know, whether or not you have a belief in the afterlife, I think that you can resolve death anxiety just by having open conversations about it and thinking about it, talking about it, getting to a point where you accept it. You don't have to like it. It's not like I'm excited to die. I don't want to die any, any more than anybody else. You know, I'm not like, whoo, can't wait. But I accept that it's going to happen. And I think once you get to that point, then that really is the answer to um, to alleviating that death anxiety. Wild. I mean, that's kind of the whole premise of what I'm trying to do here. So I, that's relieving to me as well. And kind of how I got through my own thing, I, really, I realized the importance of just talking about it, let alone anything, really does go a long way. So is, is, that, a, have you, is that something that, because that was very personal to you and how you, know, you handled your own death anxiety. Can you correlate that with how your patients handled death? Like, what, what, what was a very loaded question here and generalized question? But what I'm getting at is, are there any patterns that you've seen with your patients and how they handled it? They just come in there with acceptance, or have you seen a process with your hospice patients that how how did they cope with that? Was there is there any kind of generalities that you see maybe more often than once that a patient you know experienced on their own journey of accepting death? It's very unique to each person, definitely. There are some people who resist, and um, quite frankly, they have a more difficult death when they're resistant. And there are some that are very accepting, and their death is a good death. Uh, I've seen uh, where young people, you know, are really challenged with with facing their death, especially if they have children that they're leaving behind. That's always going to be difficult. I always say, you know, at the point of death, when a person actually takes their last breath and dies, there's a peace that you can see come over them. Up until that point, sometimes there's a lot of anxiety and agitation. We call it terminal agitation. A lot of times we end up sedating people until their death. That's the only way we can manage their agitation. But at the point of death, there's always peace. And I always think about this one guy who was uh, in our hospice care center, and he was in his 40s, early 40s, dying of lung cancer. 
he was struggling a lot. At first it was, you know, he couldn't catch his breath and that's terrible. Like to me, I think suffocation is worse than pain. When people feel like they're suffocating, that's an awful feeling. Um, but that, that symptom was able to be managed quite well. Um, I gave him morphine. I gave him Ativan. That symptom was managed well, but he was still really scared and he had no family with him. So I went in and I stood at the bedside with him and the hospice aide stood across from me on the other side and we each held his hand and we told him, you know, we're here with you. You're not alone. And he was really struggling and he looked up at the ceiling and all of a sudden this peace just washed over his face and he died. And I looked at the aide and I said, did you see that? And she said, yeah. And I said, have you ever seen anything like that? And she said, no, I never have. And it was like, just the most profound thing to witness, you know, and I, it was like, I needed to have her validation that I was seeing what I saw. And this happened, mind you, let's see, how old am I? I'm pretty old. I'm 59. <laughs> so it, it happened when I was in my 40s. So however long ago that was, <laughs> uh, a long time ago, I was just new in hospice, maybe a couple years working in hospice when it happened. And recently, this hospice aide, you know, I went and worked somewhere else. So did she. She found me on TikTok. And we started emailing each other. And I said, do you remember that guy? No, actually, I think I told the story on TikTok. And she commented in the comments and said, I remember that guy. He's like, I still remember that. That happened. It's so, you know, like, it probably just listening to the story may not even sound like that that big of a deal. But to experience that was so profound. It was just, you know, like this peace that just washed over his face. And all of a sudden, he just was like so peaceful. And then he died. So is it moments like that, that, because you said that was early on in your career, that kind of gave you that ease that you're talking about where you kind of, okay, maybe this isn't that bad <laughs> considering you've seen an experience like that, right? Yeah, definitely. What I, Here's another thing about working in hospice. You will learn when you take care of people who are dying from really horrific diseases that there are things that are worse than death. Oh, shit. And that's yeah. another thing that can help you be more accepting of death. And I'm to the point now where, you know, I live in a death with dignity state. And if I got a cancer that I knew was, was going to be a, a horrible ending, I would, I would check out. I'd use death with dignity um, because I've seen suffering and I'm not talking about pain because, you know, we do a really good job at managing pain and other physical symptoms that a person can have. But when you have a, a kind of a cancer that is so disfiguring that you don't look human anymore or you don't feel like you look human anymore, that kind of suffering cannot be alleviated with medication. There's no cure for that. You know, when you see a, a woman who has a breast cancer that has its fungating mask and it turns into like this horrible, you know, smelly wound on their chest, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, that, that kind of suffering, there's no help for that. So you see that enough and you realize that, okay, maybe being dead isn't that bad. Yeah. I think I saw a post of you talking specific. I mean, you probably have many of them, but one that stood out for me was specified about health, like the importance of your health compared to actually dying. I, I may be misinterpreting that, but I thought I saw a post of Kiana, you highlighting in a very short version of what you just said. So when these patients are on, on the, at the point where there's, you know, the suffering is just so profound, is it often the families that don't want to see them go? Or is it often a balance of the patient themselves that are not ready to go? Is it sometimes both, I take it, of 
what is the deciding factor to kind of, uh, for lack of better terms, pull the plug? Well, it can be, like I said, it's individual for each situation. You know, you might have a person who doesn't want to go and their family is just feels like they're suffering. Um, and you may have a person who's, who's, uh, ready to go and the family's not ready to let them go. And there's a lot around that too, as far as the dying process and a person actually being able to die because so many times a person is physically ready to die, but they're not mentally ready to die. And so they're not able to, to die or they're mentally able to die or they're not physically able to die. And so they can't, they can't die. And one of the hospice doctors I worked with said that there's a physical side of death and there's the emotional and spiritual mental side of death. And both have to occur before death can happen. You know, they both have to meet before death can occur. And, and I've seen that so many times as well, um, where, you know, somebody is just not ready to let go and their physical body is, is keeping them here. A lot of young people like that and a lot of really old people like that. And when I say young, I mean, in hospice, we consider anybody that's under 60. I mean, <laughs> the older you get, the younger old is. I'm going to be 60 this year. So if you tell me somebody's 65 and they're dying, I'm going to be like, damn, that's really young. No, you know, yeah, so, 100%. It's definitely 100%. So yeah, in between for sure. But I would say probably like when you get into your 70s and 80s, you know, those people are usually more uh, okay with dying. When you live to be 90 or older, you start to feel like you're invincible, I think. Because I've had a lot of patients who were over 90 who were just not ready to go yet. And I always say, you know, they didn't get to be that old for nothing. They have sheer will and determination, and they probably get to a point where they think they're never really going to die. So when it's actually happening, they can't accept it. But definitely people who are under 55, you know, um, getting down in your 40s, down in your 30s, in your 20s, those people are are having a harder time um, accepting their death. But, But some do. I mean, some get to a point where they're like, yeah, I'm ready. I don't know if you have seen any of the um, posts I've done about uh, Amanda, just some cancer kid. She's 25 years old. She's on TikTok. Uh, she's dying of metastatic breast cancer. And um, she's really close to the end. She's on hospice. And I went and met her in person. She lives near me. And I asked her if she was scared. And she said, she was. I'm just ready. I'm so ready. Um, but she's been one who has really lingered so much longer than expected. Even her mom is at the point where she's like, wow, what's, I'm surprised she's still here. So even though I think she said she's ready, there's, she's a six-year-old daughter, you know, something's keeping her here. But then again, mentally she can be ready, but physically she's 25 years old. So yes, she has cancer. She has cancer in her breast. She has it in her brain. She has it in her bones, but she's got a heart and lungs of 25-year-old. And so that will keep people here for much longer than, than usual. Oh my God. See, it's when you hear stories like that. I mean, not that it doesn't, there's no hierarchy of, you know, someone going through death, but especially when it comes to your field of someone that's 25, like talk about young, that, um, I feel like that would make me question a lot of things. I want, I'm kind of backtracking a little bit here, but it, I just didn't, I didn't get the, all the juice out of that. For one of the earlier things you said, you talked about your patients with the visioning and you said that was a consistency of, and that's them seeing, uh, uh relatives or, or their pets, just people that have passed. Is that what you're, is that what you're talking about? They, yeah. they, they see them before they pass. Is that, that's consistent as hell. Like that's something that you constantly see. 
It's so consistent that it's in our literature as a sign of impending death. If you see any other hospice creators on TikTok or Instagram, you'll see them talking about this. It is something that is uh, quite common. And like I said, you know, when it happens, sometimes sometimes people are able to communicate to us. I've had people who have told me, you know, I see my wife, she's in the corner, she's coming to get me. Uh, I see my dad, he's standing in the kitchen right there. Um, Lady looking for her cat in the room and then realized her cat was dead. Another one who told me that her, you know, sister was here and her aunt was here and grandma was there and, you know, they can tell you. And then you have those who, who never talk about it, but we still think they see them. They're just either not talking about it. They're unable to talk about it. We see people who, very, very common at the end of life for somebody to be reaching into the air when they're dying. That happens a lot. It looks as if they're they're just like, uh, we, we call it, you know, reaching for heaven or um, the God reach, some people call it, the death reach, uh, where they're just kind of reaching up and, and picking at the air. And we don't know why, but my theory is because most people, when they're visioning, are seeing those visions up, up in the air, you know, up in the corner, and they're not able to communicate to us at that point. This is when they're like, they're close to the end of life. They're not really coherent. They can't say, oh, I'm just reaching for this. I think that's what they're doing. I think they're seeing those visions and they're reaching for them. If you see it that often, I mean, I feel like you, uh, you've you seen it more than most people. So I'll take your belief for belief. Uh, in regards to that happening, I, I feel like there's such a connection between, you know, I guess the science and spirituality and what happens after this. What is, has this changed your – do you have a similar belief going into all this about what happens after we die? Because I feel like once people start having those visions and, and they're so hard to ignore and you said it's kind of in the literature, as you're saying, in regards to preparing your line of work – I mean, do you believe in an afterlife? Like, does that change your beliefs? Like, where are you with that belief? Yeah, I do. I do. And I'm not sure what it is. And and going into hospice did not have any concept of what I thought an afterlife would be. Never have bought into the whole heaven thing. Like I said, no religion in my background. It didn't make sense to me, heaven and hell. You know, I just, uh-uh. yeah. <laughs> it just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, but when I became a nurse, I, I, you know, took chemistry and biology and learned that nothing ever really goes away. It just changes its form. A lot of times that's uh, in the form of energy. And so I really believe somehow that, that our, we, we still continue to, to live on in, in energy. I don't know how long we retain our consciousness. If we do, I don't know if we come back to earth and we're, <laughs> reincarnated. I do know that I've had an experience after my own dad died. Um, I had been working in hospice for five years at that point, and he did come to me after he died. Um, I was asleep. He came to me while I was in my sleep. It wasn't a dream. I always have to, I always feel like I have to qualify that, you know, like this was not a dream. This was different than a dream. You know, I felt yeah. him there. I felt his presence. And, and it was definitely a, an energy source. You know, it was bright, orange, energy, warm, and it was him. And, uh, you know, so I do believe, I don't just think, I believe that that something happens to us after we die where we do go on in some way, shape, or form. I sometimes think it's a collective. I don't know. Like we all join each other uh, in energy after we die. But, you know, beyond that, I don't feel like I need to try to try to figure out what it is because someday I'll, I'll either know 
or I won't. And I think if I try to, um, you know, get to the point where I perseverate on that too much, then I can land myself in a place of wondering like, oh, you know, like, does this really happen? And I don't want to put myself back into this fear of dying because I'm thinking too much about, you know, what's going to happen after we die. I just leave it at something happens. I believe it's good. I don't know what it is, but like I said, I'll either find out or I won't. And if I don't, well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're either going to find out whether you do or not at some point. That's, that's another thing about it. It's like, it's, it's, there's literally nothing more inevitable than that. So, I mean, I, I kind of see your angle of not obsessing over it too much. Like I'm going to figure it out. It's going to happen someday. So what the hell am I going to bother myself constantly thinking about it? But, but there is a blend of, I think the topic of death, in my opinion, I, I don't think you should, obs- we should obsess over it and constantly, maybe not constantly have it on our mind, but there should be a point of acceptance because it's, we're going to face it at some point of our life, whether directly or indirectly, if most people haven't already. So let me, if you don't mind me asking you a more personal question in regards to the loss of your father, what were you able to apply to get through? Like, did you feel equipped? Not that, not that we're ever truly equipped for something like that, no matter what. Like, you just don't know till you experience it. But was there anything? Was it talking about it? Was it being open about it? Like, what what exactly did you go through to kind of get over a loss like that? Well, first of all, you never really get over a loss, right? Uh, you know, grief stays with us forever, always. It it forever changes you, but you learn to live with it. Uh, my dad had a, a terminal condition. He had idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, so, and my dad was the kind of guy who he wanted the doctors to fix him. He thought that they could. He did everything that they said, even though I advised him against some of the treatment that they were doing because I knew that those treatments could end up being more harmful. And in the end, they were. Uh, he landed in the hospital about three months after he was diagnosed with this disease, which was much quicker than than what we thought was going to happen. And when he finally ended up on hospice, and, and I'll tell you, it was a little bit of a struggle to get him on hospice. Um, the doctors really kept thinking they were going to be able to cure this uh, condition that he ended up with. He ended up with a, um, a lung infection. And uh, I would tell the doctors, you know, I'm a hospice nurse. I can handle it. What's happening? It doesn't look good. You know, I've researched this lung condition that he has now. You know, with his situation, the outcome is pretty, pretty bleak. Oh, no, no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. Well, one day he finally ended up in the ICU on a BiPAP. And I had gone back home for a short period of time because he was doing so much better. And, uh, and my mom called and said, you need to come. He's back in the hospital. So I went and walked into the ICU room and he looked at me and he said, um, it's not looking very good. The doctors think I have uh, maybe a year and they're talking about hospice. And I said, well, hospice is six months or less. So that doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, I, I think I need to talk to your pulmonologist. And my mom said, yes, please do. We're so confused. We don't know what's happening. And I, and I asked my dad at that point, like, Dad, what is your what is your code status? And he said, "What is that?" And I said, "You know, do you want to be resuscitated or not?" And he said, "No." And nobody had even talked to him about that at that point. He was still a full full code. But I know my parents well, and I knew that they didn't want that kind of intervention if they got to that point. So I called the pulmonologist and I said, "You know, gosh, my dad is still a full code." you know, he had this event, uh, what is going on? Is it time for a hospice consult? And, and the pulmonologist said, yes, uh, if this happens again, he'll end up intubated. And I don't think he wants that. And I said, no, he does not want that. 
so we got the hospice consult in there at five o'clock. Well, in the meantime, my dad had been really like hungry. He was a big guy. He was poor when he was a child, uh, loved to eat, loved to drink his coffee. They had him on a fluid restriction. They had him on a diabetic diet. And so as soon as we got the word that he was going to get the hospice consult, we went out and got him a huge cup of Starbucks coffee. We went and, and got him a pile of meat from this meat buffet that we have here in Washington called the Golden Corral. And, uh, mm-hmm. and then we each spent a little bit of time with him. So my sister, my brother, myself, and my mom, we each had some time alone with him and were able to have a conversation. You know, and my, my dad, I had always been like the black sheep of the family. I, I was the bad girl. Got in a lot of trouble when I was younger, jail, all kinds of shit. And so um, I got the opportunity to be with my dad and to have him tell me, look at you. You made it. Cause I had just graduated from an RN program at that point. I'd been an LPN for six years and I just got my RN and had graduated from my RN program. And he said, look at you, look at you now. You made it. I'm so proud of you. You're an RN now. This is, you know, like really wonderful. And we had all this closure and, and each one of us had that opportunity. The plan was to take him home the next day. And I was going to be his hospice nurse at home. I, I, thought he would live longer than he did. He actually died that night in the middle of the night. He died. He was on service less than 12 hours. And I think the best thing about it for us was that understanding that he was so ready to go. He was just ready. He told the nurse, I'm about ready to hang it up. And then he died. And that doesn't happen very often when a person is dying a natural death. It's usually a little more drawn out than that. We don't see it very often when somebody just goes, I'm going to die, and then they die. does happen, but it's, it's pretty rare. But we had this, you know, like I said, we had this opportunity for closure. We got to do for him what he really wanted the most, which was to eat a nice, big, fatty meal of meat <laughs> and drink a Starbucks coffee. He was comfortable and, and he was ready. And after that, you know, my family, we all, I mean, make no mistake, we experienced some serious grief. Uh, you know, we were just, uh, all of us, a, a little bit in shock. I, I couldn't believe that I didn't see it coming as a hospice nurse with five years experience under my belt. How did I not see that my dad was going to die that quickly? Uh, you know, and, and we were just so shocked that this had happened. But we were we were very, very close. We're a very close family. And and we just camped out at my mom's house for three weeks. And, and we were just there with each other. We made a DVD of my dad's life for the memorial. Uh, you know, and we just, we hung out, we ate, we drank. Um, and we were just all sleeping in the living room on mattresses. And, and that's how we, we coped and got through it. And there'd be times even after that, you know, when it was time to go back home and and pick up our, our lives when my sister or I would call each other and go, I'm not having a very good day. You know, it would just yeah. bubble up in you, you know, grief is, grief is a really, uh, interesting, interesting thing. And then I've actually learned, I think more about grief since I've, I've been on TikTok than I have, <laughs> you know, when I was doing hospice because I've had more questions about it and I've researched it more. But it was so different to me to be in the place of the person who has lost their family member, 
when I had been with so many people who had lost their family members. It was a, a very, very different experience for me. And I actually think it probably um, lended to how I relate to families when their person is dying. It made me a better hospice nurse, I think. Yeah, that's that's very powerful. And the transition that you and your family had, I think you you would know more than me, but I still feel like even though you deal with hospice patients, so I feel like you do have more of an opportunity for closure knowing that someone's going to die, obviously, in something more abrupt, naturally, right? So having that, oh, that true yes. closure is so powerful. So it's, pretty, it's really amazing that you had that transition, which I feel like, like you said, and you alluded to, grief doesn't ever, you don't ever, you grow with it and it evolves and you change with it and vice versa. But like that transition has to have a, a major impact on the longevity of how you're responding to grief, I would think. Definitely. And let me tell you something really sad, David. Families who have a person who dies on hospice always have an opportunity for closure with that person, but they don't always take it because they're in denial. They don't want to talk about death. They don't want to acknowledge that their person is dying. It's like the elephant in the room. They won't talk about it and they never have the opportunity to, well, they have the opportunity. They just never take the opportunity to say goodbye and get closure. And it's very sad. And that's another, another thing that I think um, is really important to address when I'm educating about death and dying. And I do that often in my TikToks and my Instagram is like, death is not a dirty word. And, and it's true that when people are dying, they often want to talk about it, but they're either afraid to bring it up to their family or when they do, their family shuts them down. It's like, nobody wants to talk about this thing that's absolutely going to happen. You're on hospice, you're dying, you know, you're, you're most likely going to be gone in six months and, and people don't want to talk about it. And they miss such a, a great opportunity to be able to tell somebody how they really feel about them before they die and to say goodbye and have closure. So that hits home with me, especially because my father, you know, he died, my dad, my dad died abruptly. So there's never that opportunity. So the things I would do to have that moment to, if I knowing, knowing what I know now, which is a hell of a thing to say, you know, I would do anything. So I think a big part of what, how I'm hearing you and what we're discussing, even those people that don't take that opportunity when they have it, the one thing I realize is that we all have that opportunity right now. And just because someone's not dying doesn't mean you can't ask these questions. So I'm like, hey, you're going to die someday. So I was curious, what do you think about my girlfriend? Like, not that, but like saying, you know, not taking things for granted and just asking people certain questions or whatever the hell it would be. Just, I think it, it blends of what you're saying is don't wait to the hospice bed to ask, say, or do this in your life. So that's why I think this conversations of what you're doing is so important because everyone looks at death as a dirty word, like you said, and becomes this, oh, like, I don't want to talk about it type thing. But it, the conversation of death turns into a conversation of life. And there's so many of these lessons. That's why I love, love, love. I can't say it enough. Whoa. How you're attracting this, this younger audience and the person that's not having, doesn't have an open mind. Like, I don't want, like, why are my kids listening to this woman about talking about death all the time? But if you really look at it the way you're doing it, it's so filled with leading people to the ability to live life fuller. Like, I feel like after these, all these experiences that you had, has it changed your perspective on life in regards to how to live it? I mean, I feel like you've always had fun and like live life to the fullest without even knowing you. But I feel like this has to have opened your eyes in regards to the right way, quote unquote, whatever that may be, to live life due to your experiences with death. You know, it mostly has. Definitely, it has prompted me to do things I may normally put off 
but also life is life. And sometimes you get into, you know, your, your regular routine and like, I probably don't call my mom as often as I shouldn't tell her that I love her, you know, but I do things more now with the idea of that life is short and I'm not going to wait until, you know, I'm retired to go on a cruise or, you know, my husband and I moved up to our property last year in the mountains and we live off the grid in a cabin, no running water, outhouse, the whole thing on 40 acres of beautiful mountain property. And it borders national forest on one side and state land on the other. So it's just like endless property and it's beautiful up here. And, you know, it does, it does prompt you to not wait uh, to do things that you really want to do, like to check off that bucket list and definitely to have appreciation for the people that you love. And my family's never been really very touchy feely and like all about telling each other that we love each other. But you, you know, definitely have that more of a connected feeling with them and appreciation for them and know that, um, you know, I don't want to take anybody for granted ever because life is short and, you know, the people that you love aren't going to be in your life forever. And you need to make sure that you appreciate them while you have that opportunity. My sister and brother and I go on a cruise every two years because we, we just... A few years ago, I decided that I wanted to go on a cruise. It was on my bucket list to go on a cruise, and I loved it. And so we were like, why are we only going to do this once before we die? We should do this more <laughs> often. And so like every couple of years now, we go on a cruise. And in fact, my sister and I went, my sister and brother and I went last fall, and we liked it so much. And my sister and I were like, let's go again. My brother goes, I'm kind of tired of going to Alaska. We've been there three times. But my sister and I just went last couple weeks ago, you know, again. And we're planning another one for next year for the Panama Canal. It's like, I'm not going to not plan for these things. I want to do these things right now, you know, because I don't want to get to a point where, oh, my gosh, you know, now I'm dying and I wish I would have done that stuff and I, I can't do those things anymore. Yeah, that's a heavy thought thinking about that. You know, when you, if if that comes along our our mind, to be, oh, I wish I did that. That's ter- that's that's could be worse than anything. So I commend you for that, and I think that's the le- that's one of the many lessons you just explained that I'm hoping will get through to people that are listening. And clearly, it's working on your page. So thank you so much for being on here. I think you're a legend. I look forward to following you on everything you're doing. I know you're a hospice nurse, Penny, on Instagram and TikTok. Is the same thing or? Yeah, and Facebook too. Yeah, Hospice Nurse Penny, all all one word. All one word, nice and easy. Yeah, I, uh, I'm. I think it's great. I'm gonna I hope more people continue to find you and everything keeps growing because I love what you're doing. As I said, uh, thirty five thousand times on this podcast already. I don't know if you have any any last words, no pun intended, but uh, I just want to thank you again. Thank you. 